electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Dee, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. What August will mean to your money as Delta cases surge, and some say this is as good as it gets for stocks and the economy. We debate the month ahead with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today are the following. Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, John Najarian is the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's nice to see everybody. Let's check the markets where stocks have been higher throughout the day. The 10-year note yield raising some eyebrows today. 115 is where it currently sits. Jim Labenthal, your comments to our producers got my attention today. I'm all in, you say. All my chips are on the table. How can you get bearish here? Tell me about that, Jim. Well, okay. so look, let's start with last week. We know what the tech stocks did. They reported they kind of fizzled again. But you know what? Underneath that, the stock market, the S&P 500, Scott, you know, this is right at an all time high. I think it's going to go higher this week as the non-tech names report. So looking in my portfolio, I've got nine non-tech names like General Motors, Marathon Petroleum, Viacom, CBS, all of which, if you look at the business fundamentals, they've just been going gangbusters and they show no signs of letting up. So what I'm seeing here and the reason that all my chips are on the table is the rally is rebroadening. We saw that in the first few months of the year up till May and then large cap tech took back over. But I think you're ready to see the rest of the market come back in. Yes, this is more of that value versus growth rotation, but I think you got to play it. I mean, yes, we should be worried about the Delta variant, but it doesn't seem to be impacting economic growth. Uh, we've got infrastructure that is set to come. Uh, we've still got a very accommodative Fed with no sign of, of uh, getting hawkish anytime soon, at least as far as I see. So I just don't see how you cannot be bullish here. I, I, you know, I know they're the bears out there, but I just think they're getting it flat out wrong. It's about profits. We're, we're 90 percent higher than a year ago in terms of profits. I mean, this is gangbusters. Am I? Am I overstating it? Because I feel like I'm not overstating it I don't know, man. I mean, you know, you got rose-colored glasses on, too. I don't know. I mean, look why, Look at what rates are doing today. Look at what the 10 years doing today. Mm. Uh, stocks are about to give up all of their gains on the day. Now, I know it's early and we weren't up a huge amount. But nonetheless, Dow goes negative now. S&P is about to any second. Um, the NASDAQ is still higher by one quarter of 1%. What's up with that, Jim? What's the matter? Why are rates at 115 again? I, Why do we just plunge in, on the 10-year? Yeah, you know, listen, it's a good question, but I think by this point in time, we've just got to answer that it's the, it's the Fed with their thumb on the scale. As far as giving up gains, uh, you know, for the morning, we've seen so many times that this market reverses intraday. Uh, this says absolutely nothing about where we end the day, the week, the month, or the year. And we have to remember, Scott, we are less than 1% from an all-time high on the S&P 500. Let me simplify this. Profits are coming in much better than expected. The growth rate is much better than expected. It just no, shows no sign of stopping. It's about profits. Keep it there. It's about profits. Bryn, 
you, you, you agree with Jim? You, you want to take the other side of, of where we are? Well, it's not necessarily the other side, but I think going back to rates for a second is that, you know, the Fed's had their thumb on rates all year long, yet we've had a tremendous amount of volatility um, on the upside of the now, to your point, on the downside with yields, you know, at 115. And so that I do think that you're seeing, you know, weakness in yields going lower because of Delta, right? And I think whether you're vaccinated, unvaccinated, this thing has an R naught that's, that's crazy. And so I think that's causing everyone from a short-term sentiment perspective to say, hey, maybe we're going to go back to the more stay-at-home names. You know, Tesla's up today. You can look at some of the ARC names are up quite a bit. Um, I totally agree, though, with Jim, is that, you know, ultimately earnings drive returns, period and stop. Not in the short term, but over a one-year, three-year, five-year, earnings drive returns. And earnings are just continuing to pick up. Margins across the S&P are continuing to pick up. And so I think we're going to continue to have what everyone's saying, this chop, because of the uncertainty of our new reality around Delta and any other variant. But I think that once the market settles and we all realize that COVID's not going away, we're going to have to live with this for the foreseeable future, that markets are going to settle in and go higher. Yeah, I just go back to what Scott Minard of Guggenheim told us at the end of, of last week about why he's concerned of a 10 to 20 percent pullback, Joe. Let's listen to what Mr. Minard told us, what he sees, and it's related to Delta. The, the thing that's bothering me, Scott, is that, uh, you know, while I think the expansion has legs and lots of room to run, the, the surge in the pandemic is uh, mind-numbing. And when you look at the absolute number of cases that we're getting an increase in week to week, uh, we're reaching levels uh, where we were at, like, last October, where we were in lockdown, and uh, and given the transmission rate of the Delta variant, uh, it, it's uh, very likely within two to three weeks we could be back to peak levels. Okay, now he was talking, Joe, about the possibility of lockdowns. Dr. Fauci, over the last, you know, 48 hours or so, says that's not going to happen, regardless of the spike in Delta cases. Jim's optimism mixed with Minard's pessimism. Who's right? Hmm. Well, I think it's an interesting conversation to have, but you're asking me to make a total macro call, and it's a binary one. And I just don't think the market is working that way in 2021. Scott, the market could easily fall 10%. The market could fall 10% for no given reason. Uh, the month of August, historically, it's a challenging one. The month of August, in particular for bond yields, seasonally, it's a weak period. So you've got a flattening of the yield curve. You've got a bond yield that's in on retreat today. You've got the price of oil that's on retreat today. However, I think looking forward is the correct thing to do. And even if we were to incur a 10% correction in the near term, I think on the other side of that, we come out of it okay. So I kind of like the areas of the market where Jim is seeking opportunities because that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm looking at. I think financials, I think industrials, consumer discretionary, and healthcare, in which my, uh, my index carries an overweight to each of those sectors. That's where I believe the opportunity is going to exist. So I think right now, I've said all along, you want to kind of, this is a zigzag market. And when the market's giving you an opportunity where there's this perceived weakness in a particular sector or strategy, I think that's an opportunity to go in and buy. Dr. J, how do you see it? Mm -hmm. I mean, look, I, I've been one to suggest follow the more positive 
data, if you will, about the Delta variant. Hospitalizations, rare, deaths even rarer. Um, focus on that Thank fact God. rather than yeah. the headline numbers of the cases are picking up here, there, and, and everywhere else. Um, I don't know that the market yep. has the ability to continue to do that, Doc. W what do you think? Well, um, Scott, and the unfortunate thing is uh, everything Bryn, Jim, and Joe said is right. Um, the earnings picture is dynamite. I mean, you know, these 80 plus percent of the stocks that have reported with beats um, are just amazing. And that's likely to continue, Scott, although with some mixed reviews after they report because of guidance and things like that. But nonetheless, uh, Carnival Cruise just completed two of their first inaugural uh, cruises with paying passengers. One over in Greece, the other uh, Seattle to uh, Alaska and back without incident. Uh, that's all really good news. Uh, obviously, as many Americans are vaccinated is good news. Um, but the slowing in this ISM for the second month in a row, um, that's where the rubber's meeting the road in terms of that 10-year rate, Scott, because the reason that rate's falling is that we're slowing in growth. Um, we're also seeing China report the same thing. China's still saying manufacturing PMIs, yeah, they're good, but um, lowest since February of 2020. So the fact that we're slowing and the fact that we don't get kids back to school, and hopefully we do, um, till September, and the rest of these unemployment benefits don't roll off until September, means we're really not going to have as much of a solid look as we'd like until October, Scott, because we're going to be getting this Friday, of course, data for July, and we won't get the uh, uh, August data until that first week in September. And then, obviously, like I said, since that time frame for the rolling off and everything really hits in September and kids going back to school means we won't get that data till October. That's why you're seeing the nervousness that I think you're seeing as far as growth and as far as are we going to hey, get more people back to work? Go ahead. Well, John, forgive me for interrupting, but John, you're the one I want to talk to because I was out in Vegas this weekend and you could not move with how packed it was. And I know you know Vegas. Right. I mean, so I don't have the mm -hmm. same relative scale that you do, but I'll tell you, spend two days in Vegas and you would not think the economy is reopening. You would think it's been open for years and overheating. People are gambling. People are buying dinners. Yeah. People are taking helicopter rides, driving Lamborghinis. Yes, that was me. Uh, I, I mean, money is being spent. People are having a good time. I just I don't I don't see I, I don't see what we're worried about. Oh, Sorry. I know it's a sample set of Jim. one. The, the question, Jim, is mm -hmm. not what's happening today. It's not. It's what's mm -hmm. going to happen in the weeks and months ahead. I'm looking at a stat that Scott, literally we've just been talking about Delta. Literally we've been talking just, about Delta yeah, for six about, weeks. I'm talking about Delta specifically, um, because according well, to we've been talking about it for six weeks. Yeah. Well, the U.S. was well, later than other places like the U.K. We haven't even peaked in this country yet. Fifty-nine point seven two percent. Let's call it sixty percent of U.S. counties are reporting high community transmission. Five weeks ago, only 8% were reporting the same, according to federal data. It's not about what's happening today, Jim. It's about if that picks up and there's headline risk that's out there, people pull back their own, forget, you know, okay, so we're not going to have lockdowns, right? I agree with Fauci, and whether you do or you don't uh, is irrelevant. You know, if, if you're not going to have Scott, lockdowns, Scott, if me... people pull back their own level of spending, you don't think that's going to impact the stock market? Listen, this is a great discussion. I 
Coming back on the plane yesterday, I, of course, looked at MGM and Las Vegas Sands and Wynn. And those stocks are pricing in Delta, Epsilon, Gamma, and everything. And I'm not making light of this, and I don't want anybody to think I am making light of COVID. But this is my job and all of our jobs to say where the opportunity is. You look at those casino stock charts, and they are pricing in a lot worse than Delta. And I will just tell you, the boots on the ground, and again, I'd love John's input on this, boots on the ground don't comport with what the stock prices are saying. Hey, listen, I know the stock market looks forward. We all know that. That's why those charts are down, but they look like they're down way too much. Doc? Yeah, and I think here, I think here, uh, Jim would agree, Scott, that what we're looking at is the, uh, uh, whether it's the cruise lines that I cited, the Vegas that's Jim's citing, um, those are people that aren't working those days, at least. They might be working, but the real issue here is labor. And when labor returns so that we can have uh, the supply-demand equation equalize a little bit. Because, again, ISM is down as much as it is, is flattening as much as it is, because they can't get labor. They cited that in these reports. The fact that Jim is correct, that Vegas is packed, is great news. But that means, of course, that uh, uh, we've got to see more people getting back to work And like I say, we're not going to get those numbers, Scott, until October. We might see evidence of it in September, but we're not going to get the solid numbers from the uh, employment data and so forth until October. So that's a long stretch uh, to Joe's point about how August sometimes is a meandering and sometimes volatile period. It sure could be because we'll have all these discussions about variants and whether or not this is keeping people from going back to work whether or not it's keeping kids out of school for a longer period of time. We all think they'll eventually get what, back, but hopefully it's in September, look, Scott. D- I'm looking right now. Look, Dr. Gottlieb is speaking at the Economic Club of New York, okay? And he says in terms of mm-hmm. the Delta variant that he believes we're in the, quote, end game. So as long, so long mm-hmm. as we keep moving in the same direction, all right? So yep. I get there's different perspectives about, you know, where we are, where you think we're going, what is today may not be tomorrow, and, and who truly knows. I can tell you that there are a number of notes today that would side with Jim Labenthal that said, I'm on the tractor with the farmer. Mm-hmm. Opco, they go to a street high target today, okay, of 4,700 by the end of this year. That's from 4,300. So Opco at 47. UBS today says, quote, we believe the reopening and recovery trend is on track and continue to see upside for equities. Tom Lee says, base case for the month is that stocks likely surprised to the upside in August. Not high conviction view, he says, so don't view this as a table-pounding view, but he says he thinks that's what's going to happen. Bryn? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, Tom, Tom's done a great job throughout this whole, you know, crisis, Tom Lee, of looking forward, even when, when the current environment was uncomfortable. And I do know there's data out, and I, I think Scott Gottlieb obviously has been incredible I think we'd all agree, agree to that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with Scott and, and Tom, or Dr. Gottlieb and, and Tom. But I think that there's a, a narrative out there that August 14th or 15th, we're going to hopefully see a peak there. And so we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. But I do want to go back for the, for the viewers when, you know, analysts like or strategists like Mike Wilson or, you know, Scott Minard, who runs, you know, billions of dollars come out. And they, you know, they have a call that the markets are going to have a correction. I do think it's really important for the, for the viewers out there, you know, don't mistake their possibilities 
with probabilities. And I think it'd be really refreshing for someone to come out if they're going to have a call on the market saying the market's going to go down 10 or 14 percent or what have you. Well, give us a probability on that, because if you haven't done the math, I feel like you're just guessing. Well, be, so it. be that person. For that reason, then. I'm going to be that person. Pardon then. me. You, be that person. You, you have a well, you have a well, seat. You have sure, the mic. I'll tell you be the person. So perfect. So since 1980, I've said this a bunch of times since 1980, the S&P has had an average intra-year peak to trough decline of 14.8 percent since 1980. That's 41 years. So the average peak to trough decline, which once again, inside of that includes some really wicked sell-offs like 87 or, you know, 2008. But the average has been 14.7. So I'm always expecting the market in any one year to go down 10 percent plus. We haven't had that this year. And so the later we get in the year, the higher the probability that happens. And so to me, that that probability gets higher. But we could be in a year like 2017, if you remember. The S&P had a peak to trough decline of only 3%, but then we got it in 2018. So, you know, my, my, my recommendation is embrace volatility. It's evergreen. It happens all the time. Yet people come on the show and pretend it's rare. It's not rare. So just be comfortable being uncomfortable and take those opportunities, if we get it, to lean into the stocks that you already love. Okay. So on that note, and thank you for, for saying that, Jim Labenthal is not only all in. I mean, he's putting his money where his mouth is, clearly. If you look at the chart of the next stock that I'm going to mention that Jim Labenthal told our producers that he is <laughs> buying today, and that is Rig. Transocean, sub $5 stock, $2 billion market cap. Thing was under a buck last fall. Obviously got a nice lift as oil prices went through the roof initially. But that says something about your risk sentiment, Jim, being willing to buy a stock like Rig, right? There it is, three and a half bucks. Yeah. I mean, Scott, I'm taking a deep breath before I say this because this is speculative. And, and I really need to make that clear. If anybody, yeah, but no, seriously, if anybody listens to this and go loads up on, on rig, don't do that, okay? You want to have a little, you know, a little fun money here? This is the place to be because you see where oil is above 70 and staying there. We see that uh, in the coming year, you're going to have oil demand well in excess of oil supply. And that means that it's not just shale that needs to produce. You need to go back to the Gulf of Mexico. You need to go back to the harsh water environment of the North Atlantic, uh, where Transocean uh, sends its rigs and gets a few hundred thousand dollars a day for those rigs. But listen, this trade dies as it did last year. It dies if oil is below $50 or let alone, you know, negative or zero. I mean, the, the company was going to go out, out of business. So this is as speculative as it gets. Please, folks, don't load up on this. I, I don't know if I can say that any more strongly. This is fun. Let's see how it goes, but this is not for the faint of heart. All right, we're going to see uh, where it goes. There it is, 356, uh, Transocean, shares of break. All right, let's bring another voice into the conversation now. Ed Yardeni, he's the president of Yardeni Research. He joins us now on the phone to discuss exactly where we are, where he thinks we might be going. Ed, welcome back. Thank you very much, Scott. There's the Minard camp, there's the Farmer Jim, UBS, Opco, and Tom Lee camp. Where are you putting your tent up? Well, I've got the uh, S&P 500 uh, at 5,000 by the end of uh, next year. So I'm uh, still very much in the bullish camp. Um, I'm not in the correction camp. I think it, uh, we, we tried to get a correction earlier this year in the NASDAQ, and we got it. It was down a little over 10%. didn't last very long, and buyers came right back in. There's just way too much liquidity in the system. M2, for example, is up $5 trillion 
more today than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we've got more fiscal stimulus uh, coming at us. And the big story really is uh, the roaring 2020 story. What we really have, I think, is the beginning, just the early stages of a major productivity boom. And I think this one could be one for the history books because the technology that's out there uh, to augment the productivity of the mental and uh, physical productivity of workers, I think in some ways is unprecedented. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that the big surprises we're seeing here on earnings are already being driven by productivity, and productivity has been forced on companies because you just can't get the workers. And the worker problem is related to demographics. They're just not there. What about the what about the, the Delta variant and the virus, uh, Ed? And let me also mention that the White House is now right. saying that the U.S. has reached 70 percent of adults with at least one shot. So that's a good milestone that, that we've hit. How, how are you sure. putting all of this into perspective? Well, I, I think it's important to, to recall that uh, we have Delta, but we also have the vaccine. And I think uh, all the uh, headline news about how uh, terrible the spread is of Delta is going to encourage more people uh, to get vaccinated. The vaccines do work, apparently, even against the Delta variant. And those people who might have been vaccinated once and the variant seems to still affect a very minor portion of those people don't get very sick. So um, I really think that... Um, uh, we, we're, we're learning to live with this virus. Uh, I think we're going to find that uh, people are going to increase the rate at which they vaccinate. And uh, I think um, life will go on and growth will go on and the bull market will go on. But what do you what do you say to those who, who say, um, I mean, the bond market is saying, you know, I don't know what Yardeni and, and Farmer Jim have been drinking, but look at what bond mm-hmm. yields are doing. Isn't that telling the real story? Well, um, there's a lot of moving parts to the bond story. I think one of them clearly, as we all know, is the Fed has been basically buying all the notes and bonds that the Treasury has been issuing uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, another part of the story is we look at yields in Japan and Germany. Uh, they're at uh, zero or slightly negative, And with short-term interest rates uh, at zero in the U.S., from what I understand, hedging costs are actually lower than they were a year ago. So I think you're seeing a lot of Japanese and German buyers uh, buying our bonds. Um, you know, I, I just don't buy the, the, the story that the economy is slowing down, that that's what the bond market is uh, is, is telling us. Uh, the fact is we're seeing uh, a peak earnings growth. We're seeing peak growth in the economy. But we're just talking about peak growth rates. We're not talking about negative growth rates. We're talking about slowing growth rates. And that's a good thing. I mean, these purchasing managers' indexes, their diffusion indexes, uh, when they're, uh, when those surveys are done, it's like how's today versus a month ago. And, uh, of course, at some point it's going to be, it's great, but no, no better than a month ago. And the diffusion index stops going up. But I don't understand. I, I don't understand. I mean, you, you, you're saying mm-hmm. that this is peak growth. You, you just said that. You just said that. Why should stocks yes, that, why should stocks trade at the same multiple that they trade at peak growth when growth starts to slow? How, how do you make that case? You just said it yourself. This this is as good as it gets. Well, it's as good as it gets for growth for earnings, but I mean we're talking about up seventy percent on a year-over-year basis. And Scott, you know there is a base effect here. Clearly, but we're comparing earnings in the second quarter to a year ago. Clearly, uh, we're showing not only that there's been a big rebound. In, uh, in earnings during the second quarter, but we're also comparing to how weak they were a year ago. Uh, but you're, you're making an excellent, excellent point here on valuation. Uh, the valuation multiples have been stuck around 22, I'm not, and I'm using the forward PE. So it's stuck around 22 for the past year, 
And think about everything that's happened over the past year. We did for a while there see bond yields go up. Uh, we have had a lot of concerns that inflation might be coming back. And yet uh, the, the forward PE is stuck remarkably high at 22. I think that speaks to the fact that bond yields are extremely low and are likely to stay low. I think it speaks to the fact that there's an enormous amount of liquidity out there and, and it hasn't been all sopped up and still is available to keep valuation multiples up. But, you know, it's PE times Z, and I think the evaluation multiple is going to stay elevated, and I think earnings are going to continue to grow. And, look, all I need is for earnings to grow 15% between now and uh, 2023, and the market can easily discount that into a 5,000 S&P 500. Yeah, well, I mean, you're assuming that, that yields don't go up and that the Fed doesn't start tapering and then ultimately tightening. That changes yeah, the yeah, equation. Yeah, well, you're right. You're right. You're right. We're always making assumptions when we're forecasting. But that's uh, not but the base case. More than assumptions. I mean, the question is why. The question is why are interest rates going to stay low? And the answer is, I think productivity's uh, already been making a big comeback. It is going to be an, a big offset to the shortage of labor. I think wages can go up, offset by productivity, which means real wages uh, can go up. It's uh, it's it's really a win-win scenario. I know it's hard to believe when. A scenario where things go right for, for for a long time, but that's kind of what I'm looking at. All right. That's fair. I mean, look, I, you know, a lot of people still say it's Goldilocks, and they point to bond yields and liquidity flowing and uh, no sign of stopping anytime yeah, soon. I, I, yeah, I, I prefer using the term roaring 2020s. Yeah, well, people are using that, too. <laughs> Ed, I'm going to let you run. I want to kick some more stuff around with my crew, uh, but we'll talk sure. to you soon. Thank you. All right. That's Ed Yardeni, Yardeni Research, joining us there, his take on the market. Look, the other thing I want to get to, guys, before we take our, our first break is this conversation about where you want to be, uh, growth versus value, epicenter, what have you. Uh, and that square deal today just underscores, as some of you have already said, look at some of the financials. They're attractive. They're cheap, blah, blah, blah. All the action has been with the fintechs, Right like the squares Mm -hmm. of the world, which, you know, the doc, they do their big deal today, biggest deal ever, Square having its best day since March. Uh, Just what does that say about investor sentiment, the the places where money is going to work best within the financial universe? What I was so impressed about this deal, Scott, obviously, is this is the biggest deal Jack Dorsey's ever done. Um, I've said time and time again, this is his opus, not Twitter. Um, Square is just killing it. And I think what he's doing here, Scott, is um, bolting on some of these uh, businesses like Afterpay out of Australia. Um, Did he overpay for Afterpay? Eh, That's initially what the reaction was. Stock was down 4%. Now look at it, screaming higher. Jack doesn't want to make the same mistake that he made when he didn't buy, for instance, Instagram or some of these other uh, things that, for instance, Facebook did, um, WhatsApp and so forth. So I think Jack is doing exactly what he needs to do here to really drive this stock. You and I talked about it a week ago when we saw that upside call activity in this name. Um, The stock has just surged since then, and I've rolled up twice in my long calls in Square. And yeah, I think this is a transformational play by Jack Dorsey and Square and one that really puts them ahead of PayPal or anybody else uh, in this space. So I'm very impressed. uh, And clearly, um, as many people like to shoot at him, he has made uh, some real positive steps for this company. All right. Good stuff. I got some more moves I want to get through as well. 
before we get out of here today. Check out this mystery chart. It's down nearly 15% this year. Now a bullish new call says 50% upside is within reach. We'll tell you what it is. We'll debate it in our call of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The Biden administration is expanding efforts to evacuate Afghan citizens as Taliban violence increases. More people will now qualify for refugee status, although new applicants must leave Afghanistan to actually begin the process. Meanwhile, the president of Afghanistan is blaming the quick U.S. withdrawal for the Taliban's rapid advance. He says that Afghan forces will now focus on protecting regional capitals and major urban areas as the Taliban advances. In Turkey, at least eight people are now dead in wildfires that have been burning for nearly a week. Officials say that more than 10,000 people have been evacuated. The EU has sent water dumping planes to try to help contain the fires. And on the news, more wildfires burning in Italy and Greece and the parallels to the fires and heat waves that have scorched the western U.S. That is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And at the Olympics, the U.S. baseball team has lost to Japan. The U.S. held the lead into the ninth inning. But Japan went ahead in the 10th. The U.S. team can still make it into this weekend's final if it wins its next two games. Scott, you're now up to date. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it very much. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right, Joe Terranova, let's talk about one of your moves. It's apropos of the conversation we were just having about Square. You bought the XLF. You bought the XLF. You recently added to the KRE to play the regional banks, too. You want to tell us why? Yeah. I sure do. So I've spent the better part of the A block listening into everyone's conversation, and I'm glad I did because I'm even more confident now that we have completely liquidated the inflation trade. How many times have we mentioned the word inflation in the first 28 minutes of the show? Once, twice, three times? Three weeks ago, we didn't stop talking about it. So I am completely confident that the liquidation of that inflation trade is going to lead to a moment where we're going to get past the seasonal weakness that occurs for bond yields and for stocks in August. We're going to get past the concerns with the Delta variant, and more people are going to get vaccinated. We're going to be okay on the other side, and I want to go out and I want to buy financials. I bought the XLF. 
My index got just rebalanced, reconstituted just on Friday. It is overweight healthcare, industrials, consumer discretionary. And the biggest increase we saw was in financial institutions. We added Allstate, we added Travelers, we added Berkshire Hathaway, we added Regions Financial, Cincinnati Financial, and Moody's. So that's exactly the place that I want to go to seek the opportunity. I said before, I've been saying it for months, this is a zigzag market. Take opportunity when you get the corrective weakness. We're going to be fine on the other side. Wow. Uh, Farmer Jim, sounds like you and Joe should go have dinner tonight. Sounds like you all have a lot of good things to talk about. I mean, nah, look, let's, let's mention something. Joe is about Joe's about as even keeled a guy as you're ever going to meet, and that was pretty darn energetic from Joe. You're right. I feel pretty good. Let's go have a drink, Joe. I mean, I'm just <laughs> it, it, listen. If you go ahead, listen, Scott. I put it out. I, I put it out there. I mean, there's a ticker symbol. You could find it on your screen if you disagree with what I'm saying. We trade options on that ticker symbol. Go buy pits if you disagree with my strategy. Hey, I don't but agree, my strategy, disagree. My that's, performance, it's out there. I don't need to agree or no, disagree. No, I'm not saying you, I just, Scott. I apologize. No, no, no. I just put it out there Scott, for I'm everybody sorry. else to agree or disagree. No. Can I, let me oh, add one Scott, more thing because I thought I apologize would get to, to you. It. It's Hold not on, towards Jim. you. Hold on, Jim. Go ahead, Joe. No, no, Scott, I apologize to you. You're correct. I don't mean you personally. No, I know you're I, just I apologize for that. You're correct. No, I hear you. But look. But you have to have. Our viewers. I know to a person appreciate the fact that you put it out there. You're allowed to put it out there. Yeah. Have some conviction around it. It may work. It it may not. But at least you put it out there. 100%. And manage the risk. That's the bottom line. Farmer Jim. Yeah, you know, Ed Yardeni was saying a lot of positive things, but I think he missed one big thing from last week, Uh which is inventories did not get restocked. (laughs) Uh, In the second quarter, they didn't get restocked. It's going to happen in the second half of this year. Inventories will be restocked. That's a huge positive. The other thing you did, Joe, you trimmed half of your medical devices ETF, and you trimmed half of your Mm -hmm. Chenier Energy, LNG. Is that to do what? Well, the, the reasoning behind that is not to increase any exposure. Um, I'm at my max in terms of position. So to go in and take advantage of the XLF opportunity, I had to sell out of some stuff. The IHI medical devices, Scott, that, that's just you know basically ringing the register. On the energy side, I'm trying to reflect the actions of uh, the quality momentum index, and we hold no energy within that index. I know a lot of people would disagree with that. We don't, I don't believe in it from a ESG capacity. I don't like a lot of the, uh, the debt and the balance sheets. It definitely, in terms of quality, doesn't score very high. So I didn't want any part of energy. I'm out of energy completely. Okay. All right. Coming up, Uber. Big call on that stock today. We'll talk about it. Plus the big ETFs to watch. And before the break, take a look at some of the stocks hitting new highs today, including AMC, Medtronic, and Yum Brands. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
And welcome back. I'm Bob Pisani, and this is ETF Edge. Is China still investable? Regulatory risks are rising fast. Risks from both China regulators seeking to rein in everything from tech to education to food delivery services, and also from U.S. regulators like SEC Chair Gary Gensler, who is now calling for more disclosure from Chinese firms regarding their ownership structure. After a decade where investors have increased exposure to China, many are now debating whether China should be considered a separate asset class from the U.S. and indeed from the rest of the world. Joining us to discuss, Kevin Carter, who runs the Emerging Markets Internet and Commerce ETF. The symbol is EMQQ. They invest heavily in the Chinese consumer. Perth Toll is the founder of Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, FRDM, that weights exposure to emerging market equities based on personal and economic freedom metrics. Kevin, we've talked about this for many years. You have repeatedly told me and emphasized invest in the Chinese consumer right now. Is that still feasible with this increased regulatory risk that we're having? Well, I think it is. I mean, you know, ultimately investing in, in China and emerging markets, uh, the, the, the real story, the thing that's emerging are the people, billions of people moving on up and they want stuff, more and better food, clothing, etc. And that's, uh, you know, in many ways, the biggest growth story in the world. And I think it's going to continue. But it's it's migrated to a smartphone uh, consumption model. And uh, these really are you know, amongst the best growth companies in the world. And China right now is trying to catch up. Uh, with regulations. And, and this is not a China-only problem. This is something happening all over the world. You see it in the United States, where Apple and Facebook and Google are under attack uh, by uh, all quarters as well. So I think uh, the market, however, has taken the China regulatory issues uh, very hard. And, and as they say, you pay a high price for a cheery consensus. And these are some of the greatest growth companies in the world today. And Fear has been very, very high. Yeah, you know, Perth, Kevin is saying stay focused on the consumer, on the emerging market consumer, and on private companies over in China. But is there a distinction anymore? Are, are state-owned enterprises in China, for example, and private enterprises now essentially all the same? Are they all controlled or owned by the Chinese government at this point? Yeah, so by law... Every Chinese company does have to have a Communist Party cell within their company. Every company's data, like these tech companies that Kevin's talking about, all their data belongs to the government, and they're not allowed to go out and raise foreign money if that compromises the data protections and, and the data privacy. And by privacy, I mean the government can access it, but no one else can. So there is really very little, maybe no distinction between state-owned and private companies in China. I mean, uh, in, in, other, in other countries that have more personal and economic freedoms, then maybe, yes, there is a distinction. Um, you know, our fund also excludes state-owned enterprises to bring that economic freedom theme all the way through. But that's just not enough in a country where everything is controlled by the government. So is China uninvestable, Perth? I mean, you, 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 I know you invest in companies from Taiwan and around the rest of the world. Are you saying to completely stay away from China altogether? So our fund has absolutely no allocation to China. We, it's been that way since inception two years ago, and we're continuing that way now. And that's because of the lack of personal and economic freedoms. So we don't believe that there is a price at which we're willing to invest in companies that have to put state interests first. There's a price to doing business that way, and we don't want to be sitting here subsidizing that cost. Okay, thank you very much. Much more from Perth and Kevin on how to invest in China and emerging markets. ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern time. They'll be joined by John Davi from Astoria Advisors, which uses ETFs to allocate investments around the world. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime back right after this. Dr. J, we're going to do unusual in just a second, but I see you're buying more Tesla calls. 
Yeah. Uh, and last week, Scott, it was all about Pete being right about those puts. And he profited mightily on that. Uh, and I was kind of licking my wounds. Well, luckily, at the end of last week, they started buying the 675 calls, then the 670 calls and so forth. I've rolled up twice since then, Scott. Today, they came in and bought the 750 calls, 20,000 of those. Total of 78,000 had traded by the time we came on air. Uh, so obviously, there's a lot of speculation back on the upside of Tesla. Now I've got two quick ones for you, Scott, starting with AMD. This was a stock last Tuesday that was 90 bucks or just under that. Today, it's $107 or higher. And they're buying the this week expiration 110 calls. So that's a huge jump in just five days. But boy, if anybody can do it, AMD can. Second trade, Scott, Mara, M-A-R-A. This is, uh, of course, the largest Bitcoin miner in North America. They're benefiting from China shutting down those miners. They're buying 30,000 more uh, Bitcoin miners from Bitmain. And we see big upside call buying in here, Scott. Uh, the 30 calls that expire this Friday, I bought the 28 calls, and I'm hoping to sell higher strikes against it when we rally. All right. Doc, appreciate that. Thank you. We have a do have a big call on Uber, as I mentioned. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll debate it next. Uh, let's talk some Uber now. Initiated by today, Gordon Haskett. The price target, $65. That's a 50% implied upside. It's our call of the day. Dr. J, you own Uber calls. What do you think about this call? I do. Well, I like it, Scott. Um, and a lot of people have been talking about uh, Uber Freight, which I think is an Uber mistake. Uh, that's not why you buy Uber. In fact, they sold a, a stake in it a year ago when they were really getting tight on cash. But nonetheless, um, I, I liked the note uh, for all the other reasons except Uber, Uber Freight. And I think the food delivery, grocery delivery is huge on this one. And at 44 bucks or thereabout, I think, yeah. Do we get 65 by year end? We could if we see a nice market. Otherwise, I think first quarter of next year we get there. Now, my man Joe T is just can barely even look at Uber at this point. He's so scarred. <laughs> he bought it in early February at 57 bucks, but says he'd buy it here at 44 if he wasn't so scarred. Yep. No, uh, listen, I, you have to penalize yourself. There has to be accountability. You buy it at 57 and you sell it three months later at 48. You sit in the penalty box. But I agree with John. I like the diversification of the business model. I like the uh, delivery both in terms of food and drink. I do think the logistics business is something that Uber is uh, enacting on right now that it's going to be revenue accretive in the long run, $2.2 billion for TransPlace. So overall, I, I think this is much closer towards a bottom. Maybe you've got another quarter to wait after Wednesday's earnings if you don't get the excitement out of earnings to reverse the underperformance. But I think ultimately you're going to be okay as an Uber shareholder. Bryn tells our producers today, quote, I would avoid it. Why, Bryn? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, go back to 2019. It's a dollar. It IPO'd a dollar higher than what is, where it is today. And if you remember, I mean, the venture capital guys who took a ton of risk in their early days with Travis made a ton of money, and kudos to them. They waited way too long to IPO, and the, the, 
the juice is out of the orange. And I think that it's more of a utility, which I love. I love the company as a utility. I hope they continue to do really well as a company. But I think as a stock, it's been dead money. You can trade it. I love John's idea about trading it with options. But I would not own it as a long-term investment. I just put my money in the queues where I know I'm going to get five, ten years from now some good growth. And I just think it's a utility um, that waited way too long to IPO. All right. We will take a quick break. And when we come back, we will do final trades. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're going to do final trades. First, though, we're going to squeeze in a couple of questions from you guys to our team. Dr. J, video question for you. Hello, this is Paul from Seattle. My question's for John. With Reason Activity in Roadblocks in the Options uh, Activity, what does that tell you and what do you think from, a, from an option standpoint on Roadblocks? Thanks. What do, think, what do you think, Doc? What do you tell Paul from Seattle? Well, Paul, I think that uh, Roblox is a great stock. It allows users to program and play games and so forth. And Kathy Wood's a big proponent of it. It's come down from 100 down here into the 70s, and that's where we saw people coming back into the options. So, yes, I would buy it here in the 70s, Paul. I see upside towards 100 by year end. Okay. Bryn, uh, thanks, Paul, for the question. Bryn, to you from Stacey in Fort Lauderdale, what are your thoughts on Robinhood? Yeah, well, I try to be a dispassionate investor, but currently I'm not a fan of Robinhood. Um, I have a 20 and 16 year old boys and the Fidelity app is just perfect for them. It incentivizes trading. If you look at their S1, 3% of their assets under custody are from options, yet it's 46% of revenues. And so if that dries up, I think the scalability and the earnings consistency of that business is of question. So I wouldn't be a buyer here and I don't like how it gamifies investing and turns it more into speculation. Okay. Uh, been a rough debut. I think we can uh, all agree for Robinhood. It's uh, currently sitting mm-hmm. at $36.92. All right, let's do final trades. Farmer Jim, what do you got? Yeah, you know, General Motors, it's kind of had a little rough few months here. Uh, it's about uh, 12% off its uh, all-time high. I'm going to steer into the skid here. Earnings on Wednesday. I'll be on with you after the earnings report. All right, I look forward to that. By the way, uh, the CEO, Mary Barra, is going to be on Squawk Box on Wednesday to discuss those results, too. So, Jimmy, make sure you're watching that at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, first on CNBC, and then we can discuss on the other side uh, when our show comes around. But we look forward to that. Bryn, final trade. Visa. Um, it sold off a little bit after earnings last week, which were great. It's just bouncing on the 20-day moving average. So I think it's a good entry point right here. Okay. Dr. J. Teradata, ahead of the earnings on Thursday. I like it. I bought it. Okay. The ETF, better known as Joe T., AMD. Stay with it, Scott. Don't sell out of it. Buy high, sell higher. (laughs) There you go. All right, guys. Good to see you. Yes. Good to see you as well. Thanks so much for watching today. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.